Hello, everyone. Robin Upsall, politics reporter at the Des Moines Register, here again to tell you about an episode of Three Tickets, the Register's podcast about the Iowa caucuses. In this episode, we're going to hear about the intersection of two topics that are usually off limits at the dinner table, politics and religion. A good amount of this episode, first recorded before the 2016 caucuses, focuses on conservative politics before the election of President Donald Trump. So let's jump right in. I'd like to open this episode with an invocation. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of freedom. It is a gift. And you're the one who has given us the right to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. Father, our early founders knew well that we could not have a democracy without the conscience of religion and morality in our nation. Tonight, we have gathered here to hear numerous men and women who are looking to have the rule of this nation as its president. And God, we're asking you to give us wisdom, understanding, to understand who we should vote for, who we should pick, to choose wisely someone who is honest, someone who cannot be bought with bribes, someone who is competent and skillful. I thank you, Father, that Jeremiah declares that... This is audio from the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition's Family Dinner Presidential Forum, which drew 1,500 Iowa political activists and featured eight Republican presidential candidates for a long night of political speech-making and a fried chicken dinner for paying guests. I brought my Bible. See? I'm better than you thought, you see? And actually, this was given to me by my mother, and I was just noticing yesterday, and she wrote such a beautiful inscription. That's Mary McLeod from Scotland. Very religious, actually. And uh, it was uh, something I thought I'd bring along today, because this is a group that fully understands Bibles and respects everything that it says. This particular forum was held last September in Des Moines. But events like this happen all the time, all across Iowa. The same group held a similar forum in April, and another organization, the Iowa Family Leader, held events in July and November, all featuring presidential candidates. These forums are only the most obvious expression of a long-standing political reality. Socially conservative evangelical Christians wield massive influence in the Republican Party and the Iowa caucuses. The candidate who impresses this crowd has a good chance of winning the caucuses, and remaining a viable presidential candidate deep into the nomination season, maybe even all the way to the convention. From Pat Robertson's surprise success in 1988 to Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum's outright victories in 2008 and 2012, religious conservatives have proven to be a durable and vital constituency in Iowa. The reason why is a fascinating case study in political geography, interest group politics, and grassroots organizing. Social conservatives, passion and influence. That's our subject in this penultimate episode of Three Tickets, the Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa caucuses history and culture. I'm Jason Noble. Coming up next on C-SPAN, we take you live to Iowa. Iowa. (laughs) Hello, Iowa. In the state of Iowa. I'm back. I love Iowa a whole lot. Tomorrow, Iowa! In this series, we're meeting the people and hearing the stories behind Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses. 
the pretty amazing but sort of absurd political contests that have inaugurated the presidential nominating process since the 1970s. For decades now, a big part of the Republican story of the Iowa caucuses has been the role played by social and religious conservatives. Although they represent a minority of Iowa's overall electorate and just a plurality of the state's Republican base, they've basically chosen the winners of the last two caucuses and set the terms for the remainder of the GOP nomination fight. Before we dive into the hows and whys, though, is it clear what I mean when I say social and religious conservatives? I'm talking about that slice of Republican voters whose political positions are rooted in their religious convictions. These are generally evangelical Christians who define their political identity by their staunch opposition to abortion and same-sex marriage, and whose support even for meat-and-potatoes Republican issues like smaller government and stronger military are informed by their faith. These are the voters who view the United States as an unequivocally Christian nation, albeit one whose morals have lately fallen into decline. They want to see their own particularly conservative interpretation of Protestant Christianity and American history adopted by government, endorsed in public education, and embraced across public life. And above all, they're voters whose politics are animated by a deep worry that all the things they believe in, all the things they value, have been under assault for a long, long time. And so it was actually the other side pushing me that forced me where I didn't, I wasn't trying to browbeat anybody. I wasn't trying to be a leader in anything. The other side kept pushing me to the point where I had to push back. I had to dig in for myself, find it, and push back. So I'm here because of them. So if they don't like it, they invited it. That's Tamara Scott. She's Iowa's Republican National Committee woman and a full-time conservative activist. We'll hear more from her in a little while, but that perspective she just shared that social conservatives have been forced into the sordid world of politics by the immoral intrusions of the modern world. That's really critical to understanding the nature of their activism here in Iowa. To bring a bit more context, here's Dennis Goldford, a political scientist at Drake University in Des Moines. While a lot of people who are more secular or more liberal think you have these, all these Christian ayatollahs out there to clamp down on them and threaten their way of life, Really, the way, the way the political involvement of religious conservatives began was their sense of being under threat right. from an imposing and an intruding uh, big city world that really in the past left them alone. But with Goldford is the co-author of the Bible, uh, so to speak, of the Iowa caucuses, a book called The Iowa Precinct Caucuses, The Making of a Media Event. And he's also written a book examining religion in American politics. For a long time, he told me, religious conservatives avoided politics. Uh, evangelical conservatives always saw um, being involved in politics as being involved in a corrupting process. Mm -hmm. So they had a strong sense of say, staying apart from, away from politics. Politics is just corrupting. Yeah. You just take care of what's really important. Politics is They were finally spurred to political action in the 1970s and 80s by signal events like the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion and federal action denying tax exemptions to religious schools with discriminatory enrollment practices. But just as important, he told me, was the broader liberalization of American culture and the fact that that liberalization became harder to ignore. 
but with the revolution in communications and transportation, satellite communications, you know, now all of a sudden MTV could show up in these small towns. Right. Whereas before, maybe they didn't allow dancing. Remember the movie? Uh, um, and so um, they thought they were fighting a defensive battle against intruding forces that were undermining their way of life. As I said, this movement was gaining steam in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. Jimmy Carter was actually the first president to identify as born again and to bring the rhetoric of evangelical Christianity to national politics. But almost from the start, the movement was seen as conservative and Republican. In his campaign against Carter, Ronald Reagan famously and directly courted this constituency in a speech to 15,000 people at a group called the Religious Roundtable's National Affairs Briefing in Dallas in August 1980. Reagan was preceded on stage by a pastor named James Robison, who implored the crowd in no uncertain terms to political activism. If the righteous, the pro-family, the moral, the biblical, the godly, the hardworking and the decent individuals in this country. Stay out of politics. Who on this earth does that leave to make the policies under which you and I live and struggle to survive? Listening to Robison, you really get an idea of what Goldford is talking about when he says evangelicals believe they're fighting a defensive battle against intruding forces. I'm sick and tired of hearing about all of the radicals and the perverts, and the liberals, and the leftists, and the communists coming out of the closets. It's time for God's people to come out of the closets, out of the churches, and change America. We must do it. Reagan sat on stage throughout Robinson's speech, and in the video you can see him nodding and clapping in agreement. He took the podium moments later. Now, I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know that you can't endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. That speech is widely seen as the beginning of social conservatism as a political movement. One account I read called Reagan's speech, quote, the marriage ceremony between Southern Baptists and the Republican Party. And in the crowd that day was one guy named Pat Robertson, and another named Mike Huckabee. So, that's all pretty big picture, isn't it? To bring the story of the social conservative political movement to Iowa and the caucuses, there's one guy you gotta talk to, Steve Scheffler. Well, I'm um, president of Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition, and then I'm also on the board of the National Faith and Freedom Coalition, and then uh, I'm a Republican National Committee, committee, committee man for Iowa. You know, my dad's a pastor, so I was an evangelical, um, became a Christian when I was about 10 years old. But my folks always voted, but they weren't really politically involved, per se, you know. Uh-huh. And um, like I said, when I was about 12 years old, I watched the Nixon-Kennedy debates and was, was crushed when Nixon barely lost to Kennedy. And then I used to As an adult, Scheffler sold insurance and got into politics slowly as a local activist and volunteer for what was then a very different Republican Party. When I first got involved, I guess I came to Iowa in January of 71, and so I would, I would have attended my first uh, caucus with the first state commission, all that, in 72. And 
in those days, the Republican Party was pretty well dominated by whatever you want to call it, the establishment slash Rockefeller wing of the party. That was a pretty, pretty moderate to liberal party at that time. In fact, and you were lucky if you could get maybe 10 to 15 percent of the people on any state convention floor back in those days of uh, passing any any uh, like pro-life plank. It was it was pretty, pretty dismal. That revolution then, we discussed earlier took shape in the late 70s and early 80s and began to catch on in Iowa a few years after that. It's centered in western Iowa, in the vast rural spaces west of Interstate 35, and especially the northwest corner along the border with South Dakota. And then um, I think you begin to see the eventual or, or, or the turning of the curve in, in about 84, and I believe 84, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was 86, I can't remember, is when the... Uh, the state convention actually had its first pro-life planks. It was been 1986, Scheffler told me, was the first year in which evangelical political power was exerted in Iowa in a meaningful way. I kind of organized an effort to get more conservative Republicans out of the caucuses, and it was an off year, and it was actually um, very successful. Um, you know, and even in the suburbs here, out in like West Des Moines, Urbandale, and Clive, which had always been dominated by the... Uh, Moderate wing of the party had a lot of people that got elected as county convention delegates and state delegates and the whole thing. So 84 and 86 was kind of a kind of a beginning of the change. And then? And then, of course, 88, uh, it came in a pretty big avalanche, you know. Setting off that avalanche was the presidential candidacy of Pat Robertson, the conservative televangelist who in the 1980s was already a national religious figure. I was actually Robertson's first employee here in Iowa and was on staff from about October of 86 to about May of um, 88, of course, that's when... This proved to be a providential place to be. Although Steve Scheffler probably didn't realize it at the time, Pat Robertson's Iowa caucuses campaign in 1987 was the launching pad for evangelical social conservatism as a national political movement. Robertson shocked political pundits in September of 1987 by winning the Republican Party of Iowa's Cavalcade of Stars straw poll in Ames. He defeated both Vice President George H.W. Bush and U.S. Senator Bob Dole. The win was seen as an organizational triumph, one of the earliest indications that evangelicals could be the basis for a winning political coalition. I remember I remember calling for the straw polls, like pulling wisdom teeth, because people would say, you know, I don't like the process, I don't want to be involved, I don't want to be gone all day, every excuse under the earth. Although Scheffler remembers it as an excruciating organizational effort, it now just sounds like an early example of the industrious grassroots politicking that social conservatives are known for in Iowa. Robertson went on to take second place in the caucuses, beating Bush and seizing almost 25% of the vote. Probably the most stunning story of the evening, however, so far is that strong second place showing on the Republican side of Pat Robertson. Mr. Robertson, congratulations. Thank you, Tom. I'm overjoyed at this expression of love and support from the people here in Iowa. His campaign couldn't compete in the later states, though, and he withdrew from the race in May 1988. But winning wasn't really the point. Robertson's candidacy and his early success in Iowa proved that there was a market for socially conservative political ideas. After the Robertson campaign, Scheffler helped organize religious conservatives for Dole's winning caucuses campaign in 1996 and Steve Forbes' losing effort in 2000. 
In that time, social conservatives remained influential in the caucuses and advanced as a force within the party, both in Iowa and nationally. The religious right candidate in 1996 was Pat Buchanan, and he took second in Iowa, less than 3,000 votes behind Dole. In 2000, George W. Bush successfully embraced both social conservatives and establishment Republicans, and cruised to victory in Iowa en route to the nomination and the presidency. And don't forget this famous exchange, which happened during a debate in Iowa. What political philosopher or thinker do you most identify with and why? Governor Bush. Uh, Christ, because he changed my heart. I think that the viewer would like to know more on how. Since 2000, Scheffler has headed up various statewide Christian political organizations, focused on connecting candidates to voters and getting those voters out to the polls. These days, he's on the road three or four nights a week, hitting county fundraisers and party meetings. And even he describes himself as more ecumenical than social conservatives often get credit for, and much more focused on winning elections than maintaining ideological purity. He doesn't endorse individual candidates, and he's pretty upfront about his political pragmatism, a quality not everyone in his circle appreciates. The political arena is not the church. As an evangelical Christian, I believe that when the Bible speaks on certain issues, it's not open for interpretation. It's, it's all black or all white. Mm-hmm. But in the political arena, because you're, you're dealing with um, human beings we all, we all have flaws, you're not going to find perfection. I mean, you might want to look in the mirror and then decide you want to run for president. Yeah. But it's just, you can't expect the political arena to become a microcosm of, of the church. The influence wielded by social conservatives in the caucuses underscores something we talked about way back in the first episode of this series, the value of organizing. Because the Republican caucus electorate is so small, generally drawing a little more than 100,000 participants, and because the field of candidates is often so large, the contest can be won with a relatively small base of support. Take 2008 when Mike Huckabee's 40,954 votes made him the top vote-getter in the history of the Republican caucuses. That's impressive, but it's still fewer votes than there are residents of Urbandale. Urbandale, Iowa. The key to caucuses' victory is a committed and organized base of support. And over the history of the caucuses, social conservatives have proven themselves almost supernaturally organized and committed. Here's Goldford again on social conservatives' influence within the caucus process. So they punch way above their weight. That's entirely legitimate. That's entirely democratic, small d. Mm -hmm. As I said, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. They show up. They turn out to participate. The problem with moderates is they're moderate. They just don't want to offend anybody, right? And um, but, but people who are committed to a cause, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, anti-Vietnam, pro-civil rights, anti-abortion, these people show up for these things. Social conservatives show up. They knock doors and make phone calls and strike up conversations at church and in the grocery store. And the results speak for themselves. Huckabee is by one measure the most successful Republican candidate in the history of the caucuses. And the result was much closer in 2012 but the winner was Rick Santorum, a social conservative who drew explicitly on his religious convictions to forge his winning coalition. 
It turns out the type of activism that comes so naturally to social conservatives is perfectly suited to the demands of the Iowa campaign. Everything about Iowa is about organizing and moving it out down to the precinct level. If people think they can win Iowa by buying a lot of advertising time, go back and look at the last few election cycles and see how that works out. Because it just doesn't. You can That's Mike Huckabee, whom I tracked down at an Iowa GOP event in October. I'd wanted to ask him about a bit of mythology from the 2008 campaign, which says that he owes a lot of credit for his surprising victory to one politically potent subgroup of the evangelical movement, homeschool families. Homeschool families were a very, very important part of our campaign, not only uh, in terms of the outright voters, but they provided an extraordinary level of volunteer energy for us. Many homeschool families would come to our headquarters and be there several nights a week, bringing their kids. Their kids would do their homework on the floor of the headquarters. And often kids as young as 9, 10 years old were working phone banks. So they were a valuable part of our victory. Now, Huckabee couldn't quantify just how important homeschoolers were in terms of those 40,000 votes. But he said the qualities necessary to teaching your kids at home easily translated to a grassroots political campaign. But they certainly were a vital part of us getting there um, because their energy. You know, the homeschool people, if you're committed enough to educate your kids at home, which means you have really made a solid commitment of your life and your family to your children in that regard, then your ability to be a campaign volunteer is extraordinary because nobody has to teach you what it means to be a self-starter. Nobody has to teach you how difficult it is to to go beyond the call of duty. And so I, I can't discount anything other than they were amazingly important to us. That's voter engagement happening at the most personal level, literally family to family. But social conservatives have also enthusiastically embraced more technological methods of outreach. They've built up massive databases on like-minded voters, culled from mailing lists and Facebook pages and magazine subscriptions, talk radio preferences, all that stuff. In 2014, Scheffler said he worked from a list of 315,000 Iowa households comprising 500,000 voters. And then those um, households and those people got um, a total of around 1.4 million voter contacts just here in Iowa. Wow. And so each of those voters got up to, um, you know, five, six, seven contacts each, some phone calls, some direct mail pieces. And, um, because, you know, we can't, we can't endorse candidates. Right. But we certainly can... Um, figure out who those sympathetic people would be to uh, a core set of issues and then to educate them on where these candidates stood in the issues. What makes these appeals so effective is that when your political positions are rooted in your religious convictions, you tend to show up, even for a caucus in the dead of winter. You know, social conservatives um, have a little bit more influence than the overall population here in Iowa. Um, But I think the reason why they're so motivated is because they're motivated by their faith. That brings us back to Tamara Scott, the Republican National Committee woman I introduced earlier in the episode. Her story could be a case study in social conservative political engagement. Yep, I grew up in this lovely little house on a corner. Same house my whole life. My mother's still there. And my, my family um, lived on the same street. My cousins were my playmates. Mm. 
And so um, I was just very, very blessed. Scott grew up religious, but not especially political. That awakening began in the 1990s, when her children were entering the public schools, and a few years after social conservatism had really begun to advance as a political movement. I wanted to raise my family. I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And government kept interfering with my kids. She told me she was spurred to action by elements of her kids' curriculum and the lack of parental notification before certain topics were discussed. She wrote a newspaper column expressing her concern and ended up leading a meeting of 50 concerned parents just a couple days later. When I would go to the school, they would say, our hands are tied. It's the state. It's the federal. And so trying to raise four kids, I found myself having to go back and continue to deal with government's overreach. The secularism that she found in the public schools didn't comport with Scott's worldview or her understanding of American history. And so she was driven to act. So when you hear people talk about separation of state in the public schools, it's a farce. It's an absolute farce. Look back at the old room, one-room schoolhouse. Many of them were the church as well. The Bible was there. The teachings were strong. Our founding fathers knew that if you could teach people the, the Ten Commandments or the truth of, of, the, of the Bible, that you would have a better society. They knew that. I met Scott one afternoon at the studio in Des Moines where she records a radio show and video podcast called Truth For Our Time. A lot of her activism today still revolves around education. She's a vociferous opponent of the national education standards known as Common Core, and she's devoted radio shows to criticism of sex ed, anti-bullying legislation, and what she sees as insufficiently patriotic advanced placement U.S. history tests. During the hour or so that we talked, she quoted Patrick Henry and Daniel Webster and referenced a Puritan-era law known as the Old Deluder Satan Act. She told me that when she started questioning the policies and curricula that she saw at her kids' school, she found encouragement in the nation's founding documents, in the U.S. Constitution, and in the Declaration of Independence, with its long list of abuses committed by the colonists' English rulers. So um, when I read that train of abuses, I remember in the 90s, I thought, oh my goodness, they went to war over much less than we're dealing with now. That was in the 90s. Think how many freedoms and liberties we've lost since then. In the late 90s, Scott wrote a column for a local newspaper. She filled in on a local conservative radio show, and then she got a show of her own. She helped organize social conservatives for George W. Bush's campaign in 2000 and was recruited that same year to challenge an incumbent Democrat in the Iowa House. She lost her only bid for public office, but the experience drew her further into political activism. Now she's a lobbyist, a candidate recruiter, an advisor, and a manager of conservative coalitions. I first got to know Tamara four years ago when I was covering Michelle Bachman's presidential campaign. Scott advised Bachman in Iowa and traveled with her in the late stages of the race. And I didn't feel that she was going to win, but I loved what she had to say. Her message was accurate. National security was one of her strengths. She understood um, foreign policy, and she understood the separation of church and state that's not found in the Constitution but is found in the Bible. In the final weeks of that race, the campaign embarked on a 10-day bus trip in which Bachman visited all 99 Iowa counties, surely the fastest full grassley on record. I was there for nine of those 10 days, 
following them through something like 90 of those counties. In the last couple of days, I remember Bachman literally lost her voice. And so was Tamara Scott, who got up and delivered her stump speech, while the candidate walked around shaking hands and giving hugs. But I still love her message, and I would, I would jump in and help her again tomorrow. Now, not everyone has Tamara Scott's resume, but her experience is absolutely representative of the activists who drive the social conservative movement. Her introduction to politics was personal and local. Her involvement has increased incrementally, from the neighborhood school to the Republican National Committee. And her activism has played out in ways that can be invisible or inexplicable to people outside the movement. That's why I did not do this to become a, you know, a Bible-thumping. That wasn't my role. But the more I dug in because of what people were saying, the more I felt in my gut that they were wrong and I wanted to find what was right, then I wanted to share it with everybody else when I found it. One secret to social conservatives' influence in the caucuses may be that they understand the process as something larger than a once-every-four-year straw poll on the presidency. They're committed to the inner workings of it, the slow, incremental platform revisions and policy shifts that signify real change. But on the Republican side, those come right from your grasp roots. You can bring it in on a scrap of paper. I think we need to fix this. Mm -hmm. And depending on what size your caucus is and how formally it's ran, someone will help you get that in order, grammatically, Mm -hmm. and submit it. But that's where you have the process to decide what your party's going to stand on Mm -hmm. and what your candidates should adhere to. That's powerful. Powerful. In this nation, we can't blame a king or a dictator. We are Caesar. You, me, and our apathy, that's when we're guilty. Scott told me about how she wrote an RNC resolution opposing an updated version of the AP U.S. history test and calling on Congress to withhold funding from the organization that administers it. The resolution was adopted in 2014, which essentially makes it an official Republican Party position. Yeah, I mean, it gives me goosebumps. (laughs) Something we did made a difference. We're not there yet, but we caused enough of an obstacle in the path. We slowed them down, and they may have to change their route. Yeah. That's great. Little by little. That could be the motto for social conservatives in the Iowa caucuses. Little by little. For the last 30 years, they've forced a conversation on the issues they care about. They've put obstacles in the path of candidates they oppose. Little by little, they've pushed the Republican Party to the right and elevated their candidates onto the national stage. Little by little. I'm Jason Noble, and this is the Des Moines Register's Three Tickets podcast. Hey folks, nothing to update from this episode. Everyone you heard from is still at the same position with the same group. Before we end, I want to make sure I thank everyone who helped us with this episode of Three Tickets. Thank you first and foremost to Katie Aiken, the producer of this episode. Thank you also to Rachel Stassenberger, politics editor at the Des Moines Register, Paige Windsor, our news director, and Carol Hunter, the paper's executive editor. 